When you combine education, which you provide, with action, there's really nothing you can't accomplish if when you put your mind to it. And, and despite like the evictions, we've had a few evictions, we've had some issues, we've had maintenance, we've had this and that. But looking at the big picture, if you can look and not microwave your success, you have to look at the big picture and look down the road five to 10 years is of something you can control. This is a great avenue. And, and as you've said it millions of times, as tax favored as anything you can get, right? So it's been a good ride that way. So I, I just say, look at the, what your financial goals are and who's in control of them. And then look at real estate and you can, I think you can get a very good marriage that way. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 13141314. Thanks for joining us today. Adam is here with me, and we got to talk about a few things that are important. Number one, what do you think, dear listeners, the number one generation, the number one demographic cohort is that will do anything? They will go out of their way, they will beg, borrow, and steal. They will move. They will move. Yeah, they will move to own a home, to become homeowners. What do you think that generation is? Hint, it's not who you think. It's not the demographic cohort you think it is. We'll get to that in a moment. Adam, what's going on today? Oh, you know, just living life. I was finally able to get a hold of you. You know, you've been so busy after Profits in Paradise. Uh, just kind of checking in and seeing how all the listeners are doing now. Well, hey, it's good to have you back. But I'll tell you, doing almost not exactly back-to-back events. That's a lot of work. That takes a lot out of you. We we had the Venture Alliance Mastermind Investor Cruise where we uh, sailed up to uh, New England and Canada, New England states and Canada, and then um, a little bit of time in between and right into Profits in Paradise. So I love doing events. I love seeing all our people, our clients. I just absolutely love our clients. They're the greatest people. But I tell you, those events, they they do take a lot out of you. <laughs> but it's a labor of love. It's definitely a labor of love. Hey, uh, I got an interesting thing. You know, I put my car on the market. I'm not just crazy about my car. I need a car with more space in it. My car is too much of a sports car, and it doesn't have enough cargo capacity. I really <laughs> noticed this because I drove to Orlando to Profits in Paradise, and, you know, that car just does not hold enough stuff. And so I was thinking... My car was kind of overpriced. And then all of our brilliant listeners, they know exactly what I did. I compared it based on the inflation rate to prior cars that I've owned. 
it was kind of interesting. My car was actually a much better deal than I thought. Now, my car, I'm two years into my lease. I paid $82,000 for my car, my German engineered car. And, you know, I thought my car was kind of overpriced. But then I compared it to the first, what we'll call luxury car or expensive car that I owned. When I was 22 years old, I uh, walked into uh, what was then Jim Slemons Mercedes-Benz in Newport Beach, California. It's now Fletcher Jones Mercedes-Benz. And I walked in and I couldn't get a salesperson to pay attention to me. They thought, who's this kid? He's just looking at cars. And I'm like, no, I'm actually going to buy one. So I bought a Mercedes 300E. And that car was about $40,000. So I adjusted it for inflation and I discovered that my car in inflation adjusted dollars is actually cheaper than that car was when I was 22 years old. How do you like that? And that's only based on the official inflation rate. Of course, not the real inflation rate, if you will. You know, Adam, isn't it amazing how when you really do the math. Sometimes you feel like you're losing when you're actually winning. You got to know how to do the math so you can keep score properly, right? Yes, you do. And I have to say, uh, I didn't have my first new car until I was way older than 22. I was I was driving the, the beat down cars whenever I was that age. Well, my first car, the first first one was $700. I paid cash for it. It was a real junker, let me tell you. <laughs> it was a real junker. Then I saved up my money and bought my second car with cash, a Toyota 4x4, which was my dream vehicle. I bought that in high school and and I was a totally cool kid having that uh, Toyota 4x4. I've got a good story that you and the listeners will appreciate. My very first car this isn't going to sound interesting leading into it. My very first car, I have a picture of me at two years old being held next to it. Oh, because you inherited it, it from was your in, It was in the family and it got passed yeah. down. So I have a picture of me at two <laughs> years old being held next to my first car. Well, 14 years later, you actually took possession, <laughs> yep. I guess, right? <laughs> That's pretty cool. Well, hey, listen, don't feel like you were underprivileged. Nobody gave me a car. I had to buy my cars always, so... <laughs> The first one, the second one, and the third one I, I financed. Oh, and get this, just to give people a perspective on inflation. My third car was brand new. It was my first new car. I bought it when I was 19 years old because I had just received my real estate license my first year of college. And uh, I thought, I got to have a car that I can show people properties in. And the good old Toyota 4x4 isn't going to do the job unless I put them in the back and show them houses. I, I don't think that's going to work. And uh, so I financed, I purchased a Volkswagen Jetta and I like that car quite a bit. And it was $189 a month. And I lived at home and I remember I did it myself. I didn't get a co-signer. I really wanted to do it myself. I came home and I told my mom that I financed the car and she just about had a fit that I agreed to pay $189 on a five-year loan to purchase that car. She was not happy with me. 
<laughs> so what you're you. saying is you were willing to do whatever it took to get that car. Yeah, I guess like the gen, well, we're not going to tell which generation, <laughs> will do whatever it takes to get a house, right? Is that your segue? Oh, that was my segue. Yep, I was yeah, heading there. That was pretty good. I caught it. I caught it. Go for it. Tell us. So what generation is the most willing to do whatever it takes to buy a home? That is gen the millennials, surely. The millennials, right? Nope. Nope. Not nope. them. Nope. The Gen Zers. We're looking at the Gen Zers. Millennials aren't even in second place. Hmm. Millennials are behind the Gen Xers as well. Well, that's my group. I'm the Gen Xer. So the the millennials are not willing to do anything. Now, this includes moving to another city or state. So the, the mobility of the millennials isn't quite as important when it comes to house purchasing. I think that's more looking at um, mobility in terms of where you want to live lifestyle-wise. As you know, to I, purchasing I, homes. Adam, I kind of question the validity of this story, this news story, because how do the writers know that that's true? The Gen Zers are too young to, I don't know, they just seem kind of too young to be able to say they're going to do anything <laughs> to get a house. I mean, how do they know that yet? You know, well, what do you think? The Gen Zers, the youngest ones are potential home buyers. I mean, they're yeah, in, I their, agree. in their early 20s. So yeah, I mean, they're not necessarily, but I mean, those are especially, you look at the early 20 year olds, they're the ones who are starting to think about buying the home. So they have to say, yes, I want to, and I'm willing to move. So, I mean, I think it's fair to ask a 25 year old person, hey, what are you willing to do to buy a house? Because a lot of people at that age are thinking about it you know, maybe not buying the McMansion down the road, but you know, a nice quote unquote starter home they might be looking at and they might be seeing what they're willing to do. So, I mean, I think it's a legitimate question to ask. In this segment, we're doing part two of our interview from yesterday, talking about uh, millennials and that cohort and, you know, what more about what they're like. But I asked our guest and the listeners will hear us more about the McMansions. And you mentioned the McMansions. And I think this is pretty important. I, I was talking to the listeners about how I was thinking of buying a McMansion for my own home. I just never owned one, and I thought it'd be kind of cool. But then I think of, like, do I really need this maintenance headache? And, you know, it just seems like another hassle, frankly. You know, at this point in my life, I want to spend my money on things that complicate my life less, not more, <laughs> and um, things that give me another job I'm not super excited about. I, I just, I want to throw my uh, effort into my business. I like the creativity of business, and, you know, I find that to be more interesting than managing the gardener and the pool man. But, you know, I think there's a big hole in the market for those McMansions. If any of our listeners owns a larger home, you know, maybe you would or wouldn't it wouldn't call it a McMansion. It, it depends where you live and it's it's relative to your own marketplace and your own geography. But if you own a larger home, I just don't see a big interest in the next wave of buyers coming to buy those homes. It does not seem, and our, our guest from yesterday and today agrees with me, that it doesn't seem like millennials would be buyers for McMansions, generally speaking. Of course, it's a stereotype, and right. you know there are exceptions. But what the problem tells- is, as family size shrinks, there's just no need for you know you have fewer families with three, four, five kids. You're looking at more people who have one or two kids asking, "Do I really need four thousand square feet?" 
or the answer to 7, that, or 7,000 square feet. I mean, <laughs> yeah. when we bought our house, we had two kids and it's 3,400 square feet. And my wife was like, this is way too big. This is more than we're ever going to need. And then we had twins. And so, you know, it became yeah. not quite as excessive as that. But I do think people are asking, is it worth my money to do that? Now, one of the interesting things you were talking about this article about who's willing to buy is one of the things that stuck out to me is over half of the respondents to the study said they hadn't heard of Fannie and Freddie's low down payment options or the uh, FHA loans at all. And they thought their credit score was too low. So we are competing for properties with people who don't even understand their financing options. Unfortunately, yeah, no, that's, scary. So, I mean, that's a really, <laughs> that's a really good thing for us as investors. And especially, you know, as we buy from market specialists is the competition just isn't there because people think, well, I don't have enough money necessarily, or my credit score got dinged back then. So, you know, I'm not good enough to get a loan per se, but they don't understand in some ways how little it takes to become eligible for a home loan. Right, right. That's true. But I think I just don't picture millennials with their environmental conscientiousness and their tech savvy leanings and their sort of portability ethic. I, I'm I'm making up that phrase, right? I'm going to call it the portability ethic, which I, I think is actually quite significant. I just don't picture them wanting a big spread. I don't think it has that much to do with family size. You know, a little bit, sure, but you'd have to have a massively large family to need a seven to 12,000 square foot <laughs> McMansion, okay? It's just not necessary. It's a desire, not a need. It's a want, not a need. So I guess the point of this to everybody listening is, look, if you own one of these houses, be careful because I don't think there's another wave of buyers coming to buy it from you, whether it be the millennials or the Gen Z, I don't think either of those cohorts would be interested in a McMansion. It all remains to be seen. That's just my prediction, my thinking. So if you're going to buy one, you better get a good deal on it and buy it right going in. But, you know, again, the topic of this show is investing. So I just want to mention that when it relates to your own home. All right. You had one other piece you wanted to talk about quickly before our guest, right? Yeah, we wanted to talk about HELOCs. HELOCs, yep, yes. Yep, home equity lines of credit. Yep. Americans aren't doing it anymore. I mean, to put, not put as it simply, much. yeah, they're, not they're just much. not doing it as much. It became big, you know, in the run-up to the Great Recession, and it has since been slashed. And the interesting thing is it's gone from 5% of the banking assets all the way down to below 2%. I mean, we're getting close to like 2000 four levels of um, home equity. It peaked in, surprise, surprise, 2009 in that area. I mean, it says 4% of households had a line of credit in 2016. Yeah, That's it. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. That doesn't tell us, although it still bodes well, okay? It doesn't tell us the amount of equity they have, the loan-to-value ratio yeah. of all the housing stock, which, by the way, I do happen to know that, and Adam, you might too. It is pretty good. So the equity position in the marketplace is is good. It, in other words, it, it bodes well for a stable market without any kind of massive decline or housing crisis. So that's good. But I want all of our listeners to hear this and think, this is good for the market in general, 
but it's not what you should do, okay? <laughs> what you should do is the opposite of this. You should be using your equity and not having sleepy equity. Now, you got to do that prudently. Don't be silly, as Eddie Murphy would say in Beverly Hills Cop. Don't be silly. How did he say it? I don't know. It was pretty funny in that old movie. Adam, that was a movie like when you were a little kid. Anyway, uh, <laughs> millennial. Um, that's the thing. You know, use that equity. You want to make it work for you. But this is good news. It bodes well for a good, stable housing market going forward, even when, not if, but when we hit another recession, uh, which we inevitably will, and it may be right around the corner. Nobody knows. Um, it, it bodes well for the market. So that's good to hear, Adam. Yeah. And the, you mentioned how much equity there is. There's estimated at $6.3 trillion of housing equity right. out there. The only problem use. is we don't know compared to what, because I don't have those figures in front of me. Is it $6.3 trillion of equity versus $8 trillion in housing stock value? No, it's not. But I'm just saying you got to know compared to what, right? So that that's really the question. But overall, I do know that the loan to value ratio or the equity to value ratio of all the housing stock is actually poised. It's, pr- it's pretty good. Yeah. So, and one of the good parts about, about this is since they're not using our homes like credit cards anymore, it's going to hopefully keep us from having a whole bunch of defaults as people aren't able to pay it back and they lose their home because they can't afford to pay their loan back. And also, we're not getting the massive influx of people pulling equity out of their house and using that line of credit to buy more homes or buy you know their next home or whatever they're going to use it for. So it's hopefully going to limit the bubble aspect of our real estate market. Absolutely. Like uh, the most important thing of that is not their ability to afford the payment as much as it is having skin in the game, which by the way, is the title of a great book I just finished by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. I talked about it in the past few weeks. Skin in the game. Get that book. Read it. It's great. Nassim Nicholas Taleb, Skin in the Game. It's a must. So check it out, folks. All right, Adam, we should tell our listeners to go to jasonhartman.com. Check out the properties. Be sure they're subscribed to the Property Cast podcast so they get the updates on all the new inventories that becomes available. I think we should get to our guest, right? Yeah, one last thing. If you, any questions popped into your head after Profits in Paradise or if you have any questions for us, go to jasonhartman.com slash ask. Ask your questions, and we'll address it as soon as we can. Good call, Adam. Thanks for bringing that up. Let's get to our guest, and uh, we will finish part two from yesterday's episode. Now, both of these demographic cohorts, I'd say, would be typified by, well, at least they like to think of themselves this way, as socially responsible, interested in a company or a brand that believes in something is, I mean, look at cause marketing has been around for a long, long time. This is not a new idea, right? But there are some distinctions about it with these two cohorts and, and please, whenever possible, contrast them. How are they different? What are your thoughts on that? So yes, cause marketing has been around for a very long time. You know, I did write a new book called The Purpose Advantage. And in this book, I tried to very much highlight the fact that today's consumer and even employees, when all things are equal, and they're not always equal, definitely prefers brands with the soul. 
And the key part of this is less about generation and more about the ability to afford something. So if my economic situation doesn't allow me any latitude to be able to purchase something beyond whatever the low cost item is, then I'm buying the low cost item. On the other hand, I've met, mentioned this day trader mentality. If they're really efficient day traders and I'm making a decent living and I'm 22 or I'm 29 and I have a Gen Zer and I have millennials both in the workforce who have discretionary income. So then I can be efficient in my trading up and trading down and I can have a private label choice when private label is the best option for me and I can have a values-oriented brand when I prefer a values-oriented brand. And so what we're seeing is a profound change in behavior driven by the fact that government, both sides of the aisle, is not governing on any political issue. There's nothing happening. And then organized religion, you know, when I say the word innovation and organized religion, it's not exactly something that goes hand in hand, right? People are like innovation, organized religion. So we have a purpose white space void. And what we see is brands connecting with people on issues, whether it's Walmart and the letter they sent to Congress, both sides of the aisle saying, do your job, whether it's Patagonia saying, we have to reimagine our purpose. We're no longer just here to do no harm. We're here to protect and defend. And whether it's Ben and Jerry's on prison reform, company after company is filling this big void. And young people, when they can afford it, are going to spend a small premium for brands that align to their values. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Good to know. What else would you like people to know as we wrap it up? Maybe a question I haven't asked you, uh, just anything you want to share with our listeners? Sure. I think that the key thing to understand and the mistake that costs people millions of dollars is getting entangled in the myths around millennials and Gen Z. Deal with the hard data, not the myths. These generations are not homogenous cohorts. There are parts of the cohort that are thriving and there are parts of the cohort that are struggling. A lot of that has to do with when they came of age. The discretionary spending today is a significant part of how people express themselves, but often around brands that sort of stand for things that I aspire to support. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. I've got a question for you before you go, uh, but first give out your website if you would. I'm easily found at jeffrom.com. J-E-F-F-F-R-O-M-M.com. Great. And Jeff, just a final question before you go. You know, one of the interesting things we've seen in the, in the world of housing that I think speaks to sort of the mentality of the population at any given time, one of the economists that I've had on the show many times, Harry Dent, predicted a long time ago a crash in the, you know, what's known as the McMansion housing market, right? These big giant houses that are much more than anyone needs, right? And I, I'm just sort of wondering, as we see Gen Xers aging, millennials aging, certainly baby boomers aging out of those properties, empty nesters, et cetera, and, you know, moving to simpler properties to maintain, do you think the millennial generation and then even later Gen Z is going to come and pick up all these big McMansion houses, or are they just kind of their mentality not going to interest them in that kind of housing stock? It's funny you ask the question because I've talked about McMansions in some of the speeches I've given. I don't think the McMansion is going to make a big comeback because today's consumer really wants technology and features. And given a trade-off between 
size and uh, a well-connected house or a really fancy kitchen, they're going to go for the well-connected house and the really fancy kitchen. So I don't see a major rebound on the oversized 8,000 square foot homes that were built back in the day. Yeah, so they're all they're going to languish on the market is your prediction. But you know, it's not like that's a trade-off, is it? I mean, the well-connected home is not hard to do. You know, you don't even have to wire any of that stuff in anymore. It's all wireless. Uh, so, sure. you know, if you want to have your lights go on and off or dimmed or be a different color or, you know, your, and I don't want to say too loud, your A-L-E-X-A, uh, <laughs> you know, you can do all this stuff wireless. So big house, small house, not a big difference, is it? Well, I think mentally maybe that be, may be true. There's still the cost of heating and air conditioning and taxes right. and everything else. Yeah. So, you and, know, and gardening, maybe, you know, mow, mowing the lawn is still a pretty low-tech experience. <laughs> yeah. I, let me say this. It's not something I see as a uh, high probability thing compared to other things that I think are pretty high on their agenda. Yeah. Are they going to have big families? I mean, they've delayed marriage. Uh, they've, you know, some marriage has kind of gone out of style in general, but if they're getting married, they're getting married later. No, they're probably not going to generally have big families. Yeah. So they're going to be, they're going to be small families, you know, one or two kids or maybe no kids. Right. Yeah. I don't know how you do 1.8, but it, yeah. It'll be like <laughs> well, statistically you can do it. Okay. <laughs> and so then you also have a less of a need around that bigger home. Too, exactly. right? if, that, that, if, yeah. I was kind of looking at that as a result of, of that. Yeah. Absolutely. The other thing I think as they continue to want to be in suburban areas by schools, when they're having families that they would have access to public transportation in schools, that will dictate to some extent the size of the home that they can buy proximity to public transportation in school. If it's bigger homes, then bigger homes will be in vogue. If it's smaller homes, smaller homes can be in vogue because okay. location, location, location will still be true. Well, yeah, I hate to keep extending this interview, but I, I can't leave that one alone. We got autonomous vehicles right around the corner and it looks like we're going to have cheap energy for quite a while, you know, in terms of fuel costs and electric cars and so forth. So I don't know. I kind of wonder if maybe there's going to be a resurgence of the suburbs because when the for sure and and you for know sure. certainly technology you know we can just work at home in general. We don't need to commute anywhere, right? Suburbs will be cool again. McMansions yeah. will not. Suburbs will. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So they still like having a yard and the suburban lifestyle, but yeah. uh, maybe not a McMansion necessarily. Very interesting. Jeff, great talking to you. Interesting conversation and. I can't wait to see 5, 10, 15 years from now how it all turns out. <laughs> thank you for your time. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, heartmanmedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own, and if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional, and we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.